think for the moment, it made more sense for me uh, not to change my shirt because it is purple. So it kind of yeah, goes- you, you always do it when it's convenient for you. If I want to wear, if I'm feeling what I'm wearing, but it's not what you want, then you have you know, that. The only thing I thought about was that the color theme matched. And so that was, that was it. That was the only thing I was thinking of. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome so, to Generational Change. You have nothing to say? Yes. Welcome all. It is Generational Change Wednesday night. I'm Jen. I'm Peter. What's going on on your end, Jen? Uh, so I'm up here in Asheville for, you know, the next six weeks, thankfully. And so I'm just, you know, getting in my getting in my zone. But I'm really excited to talk to this next guest because the whole thing is very interesting how it happened. So before before we bring her on, I want you guys to know. So I was driving on the highway and I'm sitting there and watching what looked like like water cascading down the highway, like it was a river flowing, basically, like this flowing river, because it monsoons in Florida. If you haven't been in Florida rain, it's just, it's ridiculous. And I just had this thought, like, why don't we do municipal rainwater collection? I wonder if that's even a thing. Like, I know residential rainwater collection's a thing, so I started looking it up, and when I looked up municipal rainwater collection, that led me to find Sarah Soika, who actually just recently wrote something um, on it, on this exact topic. So that was really kind of coincidental. Not that long ago. It isn't like this came out years ago and I just had no clue, although I haven't had a clue. So I think this is something we need to know about in Florida. I think it is a very important topic to discuss. I think when we're talking about a lot of these uh, environmental um, plans that we have and the things that we can do, uh, I try to explain to people that are still skeptical about climate change and how much we're actually being affected by it. Uh, there is no debating whether or not we are polluting our clean drinking water. That is indisputable and is a serious problem, uh, whether here in Florida, whether in Virginia where Sarah is, or whether you're talking obviously about Flint, Michigan, which is the first place that comes to mind for most. This is a serious problem and one that can be mitigated piece by piece, but cultivating rainwater, that should be a no-brainer as far as I'm concerned. And would you believe it's actually not allowed in all states? Not all states permit rainwater collection even for residential use. They can actually prohibit you from collecting rainwater. When the CEO of Nestle said that water is not a human right, it's a privilege, they weren't kidding. They do not believe it is a right. They believe that you should pay for everything. And this is where the failure of runaway capitalism comes full effect because if you think that you cannot, if you think you can survive without water, well, <laughs> find out very, very, very quickly. So without further ado, she is a prof associate professor at Randolph College for environmental studies and physics. And you said, Sarah Soika, is that how you say it? That's how I said it. I did a little research. We'll find out, we'll find out very quickly if I, if, okay. I, if I botched it or nailed it. Sarah, welcome to Generational Change. I welcome. And you said it exactly right. It's Soika. We always say it's like the J sounds like a Y is the best. And it's word. Polish. Yes, it's Polish. It is. It is. Yes. Yeah. I always did research. So you heard in my intro that I'm sitting here driving on the highway. And I don't know if you've been to South Florida, but when it rains, it's not like it's it's a deluge, right? Like th this is not raining like most places rain. So why are we not collecting that water? And, you know, I, I started looking into this and sure enough, 
you just published a chapter, which I want you to tell us how people can read that because there's a way for them to request to read the, the chapter. I, I couldn't, I couldn't find it with like a free link to, to connect it, but we'll, we'll get to that. So, so I'm glad to know I'm not crazy that this is actually, <laughs> well, okay, I am, but not because of rainwater collection, <laughs> but so would you talk a little bit about um, what rainwater collection could even be used for on a municipal like level? Like what, what can we even do with that? Yeah, so I think on a municipal level, a lot of it would be looking at the same types of things we use reclaimed water for. So a lot of what we call the non-potable uses, which are the irrigation, um, toilet flushing, laundry, cooling towers are really a huge use of water um, that we don't always take into account. There are possibilities to use harvested rainwater for drinking water. Um, Obviously, that comes under the Federal Safe Drinking Water Act at that point and adds additional regulations. But um, it's possible, right? I mean, it's a very viable water source. And when you mentioned the Florida rains, um, I actually went to college in St. Petersburg, Florida. So mm-hmm. I had some time with the, the rains of Florida. And that is one of the challenges with harvesting rainwater is it's a much um, more pulsed supply than a lot of other water supplies. But that doesn't make it impossible. That means we need to figure out how we store it effectively and harvest it effectively, given that it comes in really large deluges sometimes, and then maybe a few days without it, and then um, a lot of water again. So there's lots of ways to think about how we can use this water on a larger scale. There are also opportunities for municipalities to help contribute to funding for smaller rainwater harvesting systems and really integrate it into their overall water plan. That's one of the things that we're starting to see is that if you think about it as really a part of the overall municipal water supply, whether it's handled at the municipal level or supported municipally, but distributed strategically to businesses and homeowners and things like that, that can be another really viable way to work it and help reduce flooding. Is there so anywhere what, that has this? I'm just curious, like, what is there anywhere that, that this has been done successfully outside of just residential? So there are lots of places where rainwater harvesting has been done in institutional and commercial settings. Um, So lots of businesses, um, lots of elementary schools, high schools. If you think about like an elementary school, you have a lot of roof area usually. Um, So a lot of surface area to collect. Um, Lots of need for toilet flushing and other non-potable uses. And during the times of year when you have less students around and don't need the water for toilet flushing and things like that, you usually have a lot of need for irrigation. So you have this really lovely setup of need for water year-round, need for non-potable water year-round, and a lot of area to collect it. Sarah, what is the biggest impediment to us being able to do local municipal rainwater collection? I think, um, I mean, one is figuring out a regulatory approach to it. How do we decide what is safe enough? As you mentioned, we do have to think about safety with water. We've seen that with Flint. We've seen that around the country. Um, When we're thinking about non-potable water, the challenges are much smaller than they are for potable water, but we still have to think about that. And I think dealing with how we store it, um, because again, you get this huge deluge and then you might not get rain for a while. And how do we integrate that well into what's really a pretty aging infrastructure for all of our water systems (laughs) across the country? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we definitely have a huge infrastructure problem in this country, and that is uh, one of the big problems, um, maybe the biggest problem with why Flint has suffered the way that it has. Uh, I think it's safe to say 
that if we did have, uh, you know, a better handle on infrastructure in this country, that some of the problems would be mitigated. But this seems to me like a really common sense approach to dealing with it. There's also parts of the country, particularly Florida, which gets uh, the most rainfall in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it could be a very profitable industry selling water to other parts of the country, particularly places like Nevada and California and Arizona that have a huge problem with droughts. So, I mean, to me, this is all, um, I think it's just an example of runaway capitalism where uh, they don't want the, you know, they do not want working class people tapping into something like this and only big business should have their hands in. That's what I see. And we've definitely seen um, a lot of kind of, embracing of this as a new field for people working. Um, We've seen plumbers unions doing a lot of training in people getting set up to do rainwater harvesting systems, laborers unions really saying, this is an emerging technology that we think will have jobs in the future. This is a way to sort of differentiate yourself and do something that's both environmentally and economically beneficial. Talk a little bit about your chapter. Well, first talk about the book as a whole, because I know that there was this whole book written that I'm assuming is like very thick because I can see that your, your chapter alone is, is, is long. So like, just talk a little bit about this book and what your contribution was and about like the study that you did, because I know that you really looked at like, what percentage of usage can we really get from doing this? Like realistically. So, yeah. So the whole thing, it's a, a large book that was put together by um, a group of editors looking at resilient water management in urban settings. And so what are all of the different things we can do to better manage our water in cities? Thinking about all of the ways that we use and pollute water in cities, how do we bring all that together? And um, a colleague from Longwood University, Kathy G and I wrote a chapter together thinking about how do we maximize the benefits of rainwater harvesting. And one of the biggest things that we see is the way we maximize the benefits is by using it. I think there's sometimes a a mantra of, you know, if you have this rainwater harvesting system, you really want to save the water. And obviously we want to conserve water. However, if you can use that water instead of other water for your uses and make space for the next storm, that's much better. And that's one of the sort of mindset changes with rainwater harvesting is when we have it, let's preferentially use that and then use the um, more traditional sources when we need to. So it's sort of offsetting those and letting us save those for another time. So, you know, it's, it's kind of site dependent, um, obviously how much we can use, you know, when you have a place like lots of South Florida, where you have lots of rainfall, um, you can fly a large portion of the demand um, particularly that non-potable demand, the non-drinking water demand. And again, I, I want to be clear, you absolutely can treat, treat harvested rainwater to be drinking water. Um, there's actually a company that bottles harvested rainwater now and sells it as a bottled water. So it is absolutely can be done. Um, it is done less commonly, partially because for a lot of our businesses um, in our homes, most of what we need water for are actually these non-potable uses. They're sort of a bigger percentage of our use. And so if we can remove a lot of that from our demand on the traditional water supply, we make a huge dent um, sort of in how much we're having to pull on that traditional water supply. Yeah, we have a real problem. I don't know how familiar you are with it down here, but 
we're on top of limestone that sits on top of an aquifer um, that is slowly and slowly being further and further encroached by saltwater rise, uh, sea level rise mm-hmm. coming in underneath the limestone. And we are going to have a significant freshwater problem here. Like that's, that's going to happen. And the fact that nobody's talking about different things to address this um, is very frustrating. I, I'm not exactly sure why nobody's, I mean, it, it seems like, I guess they just haven't found a way for it to be profitable enough yet. Yeah. Well, and one of the ways that it can be done on a municipal scale and um, what you're talking about plays into this is some places have actually done aquifer recharge. So you collect it and you inject it back into the aquifer to then be pulled out later on. So you're replenishing the aquifer in that way. Um, And that's one of the approaches that has been used in terms of sort of larger scale rainwater harvesting. And I know some states are better than others. Like the rules are all different. My friend was just telling me that they weren't allowed, like in Oregon, I forget where it was, that they weren't allowed to collect rainwater. Is that a thing? Like you can actually be prevented from collecting rainwater? Yeah. And so there's sort of, two really dominant ways that water laws work across the country. Um, And a lot of the Western states are um, sometimes called water rights states or prior appropriation states. And under that water law doctrine, you don't own the water that lands on your property because it would have gone to whatever river and someone else already has a claim to it. It's a first in time is first in line. Whoever has the first claim to that water Um, gets that allocation. And so there's been some work to try to change that, especially for residential rainwater harvesting, Um, partially with the logic that a a lot of that water that comes off of particularly like a residential roof, it was probably going to soak in somewhere else or evaporate out before it made it to the river um, and is not going to have a big impact. But that is a thing that um, there are absolutely states where rainwater harvesting is not allowed because of that doctrine. Well, I think that's terrible, and I think it's just another example of how we've commodified everything. Um, something as simple as, you know, bottled water was, it never used to be a thing. Um, but then again, a lot of the reasons why water has to be bottled is because it needs to be processed because of how much drilling, endless drilling we do throughout the country where a lot of clean water is. Uh, we see the water, um, the clean water dumping that happens constantly. Uh, you know, we know the companies that, uh, are guilty of it. Um, how much of us moving to a clean energy grid do you think would mo- would mitigate this problem? Uh, obviously, the faster we can get away from, you know, fracking, uh, specifically, you know, coal and natural gas, I think will have huge dividends on the environment uh, as well as the economy. But I do think that that does play a role because I think right now they know that everything could be commodified, and if they are allowing people to basically harvest their own water, uh, they're losing profit. And I think from our perspective, that plays a huge role. Uh, Your thoughts on that? Well, there's a lot of work on what's referred to as sort of the energy water nexus, or sometimes it's the energy water food nexus. Um, The idea that it takes a lot of water to produce traditional electricity. Um, If you think about the way traditional coal-fired power plant works or a natural gas plant, they use a lot of water. Um, There's water used in production of the fuels. And so absolutely the traditional energy grid adds an additional strain to our water resources. Um, In general, that's one of the highest sort of industries of withdrawals of water in the United States. Now, withdrawals and consumption are a little bit different, but we absolutely know that it is a major source of water use in the country. Being that you're in Virginia, um, what has been, if anything, the 
word on the street regarding any activity uh, up in you know DC. Uh, is there anybody who's even attempting to do anything, uh, legislatively speaking, regarding uh, municipal rainwater? I think more of the effort is still on allowing and getting better regulations for individual rainwater harvesting systems. Um, it's probably where more emphasis is right now. Um, I think that municipal rainwater harvesting systems, or again, I think municipal support of more distributed rainwater harvesting systems also has a lot of appeal. A benefit to doing the sort of more distributed implementation is it can actually be incrementalized. Um, we've seen at least some academic studies saying if you have a place like Broward County with lots of population growth, um, perhaps a way to grow your water supply as you add more people is to actually subsidize rainwater harvesting on some of those houses. And then you do it incrementally. You're not trying to build out for the, we really think it's going to be this population in 2050. So let's expand our water supply to that right now. Say, okay, here's how we're expanding and we're going to expand our water supply with it. I just have this thought that municipal properties should just be built with this as a given. Like, I don't understand why we're building, you know, county structures that aren't solar rooftop. Like, I don't, I don't, like knowing what we know now, why are all these things like municipal rainwater collection should just be automatically part of the water infrastructure and system. And it's like, why would we not be collecting it? It's seriously rolling down the highways like a waterfall. Like, it's ridiculous how it's done. Like, I, you could probably power like hydropower through this stuff. It's coming so hard. Yeah, and they've found, I mean, so there are a decent number of cities where people are adding this. There's also been research that says that simply from, from a flooding perspective, you don't count the benefit of the water supplied. Um, the reduction in flooding you can get from widespread implementation of rainwater harvesting would pay for itself. Um, it doesn't necessarily impact the really huge floods, right? You're not putting in systems that are going to handle the hurricane. But we find that over time, we get lots of small floods that do smaller damage but are so much more frequent and if you can reduce that damage you can make a big difference in um, overall flooding and make a really good financial case um, that's one of the big drivers here in virginia for rainwater harvesting is really stormwater management and runoff reduction um, so the water supply benefit is sort of it's one of two major benefits. Um, we're in the Chesapeake Bay watershed here where I am. And so there's lots of regulations regarding runoff from your site and being able to control that by saving the water and using it is a big incentive. Um, and we do see a number of municipal buildings doing that. And I think that may be the first step is municipal buildings doing it for themselves. Yeah. And then thinking about bigger scale, like um, municipal support of individual projects or maybe a municipally run project that collects from all the houses in a neighborhood and redistributes out within that. So I think there's lots of ways to build this up and think about how to integrate this better into our overall water supply plans. Yeah, I think it's important. We, we're in every time, it doesn't even have to rain heavily in Florida for the streets to be completely flooded. I mean, the flooding is out of control right now. So anything that would mitigate stormwater and storm surge is something we should be working on. And I actually did find out that Florida, in terms of the, the statutes, is very amenable to rainwater collection. But yet 
they need to set that example. You know, it's one thing to say, sure, you could collect rainwater and put the onus on the individual, like they always do with everything. If only you recycled, if only you drove an electric car, not, oh, the, but the military industrial complex and big agra are part of the biggest problem. But it's the same thing with this. Like they need to be doing it and setting that as an example of, of what we should do on a micro level, I think. Yeah, and we have seen some cities and states do a really nice job. The city of Charlottesville here in Virginia has a number of rainwater harvesting systems on some of their city buildings and schools. Um, city of Virginia Beach has put in rainwater harvesting systems on a lot of their schools. Um, and that's, again, partially a – they have a really um, – they're close to the water table there because they're right by the water. And so what do you do with this water from your site? So with such a high water table. Um, yeah. So we've seen some, some places that have done a really good job of incorporating this into how they're thinking about um, further development in the city. Last question for me. Uh, is there a cleaning process that the water must go through uh, for collection purposes? Is that something that's necessary? So in general, um, we think that, and research has shown having some sort of filtering and it's mostly sort of debris filtering before you store it is best. If you have ever been someone who composted, the last thing you want is a rainwater tank. That's like a wet compost bin. Um, so if you can keep all those leaves and dirt and things like that out, you protect the water quality from the beginning. Very frequently when it's used indoors, it is also um, further filtered and disinfected before it's being used indoors. Um, just from a human health protection standpoint. That's pretty standard here in the U.S. It is not necessarily standard everywhere around the world um, that does rainwater harvesting, but that's most typically what's done. Um, something like ultraviolet light or ozone or chlorine to disinfect it. Yeah, I think it's something we need to be pushing for. I think it's something we need to be paying attention of and cognizant of. It's nothing I ever even thought about. We go to so many, like, commission meetings and just different things. And I, and I have never really thought of it before. And I think that these are things that can be done that people can get behind. And that's, a, we need to be taking better advantage of it. That's don't expect our elected officials to do anything about it. It's got to be the people that, you yeah. know, step up and say, this is what we want. And then, you know, ultimately you generate enough, uh, uh a momentum in order to do it. Uh, but actually it's, uh, uh one thing that did just come to mind, and I am curious, um, Virginia is an interesting state because I know that there's been issues. Uh, I know there were a lot of issues with Governor Northrum. Um, is Governor Yunkin doing anything related to the environment? I, you know, I'm not holding my breath, but, you know, I am curious as to how he's doing so far. Yeah, I, um, I think he has is looking actually at removing us from some environmental commitments at this point. I would need to double check all of that. Um, but that's my, my understanding. So um, I think it's a place where we've seen some changes at the state level in terms of our commitment to some of those um, environmental practices and environmental policies. One thing we found that was very effective down here in South Florida is that when it comes to whether it is colleges, Randolph is a small college. There's a lot of them, a lot of liberal arts colleges throughout Virginia. And then obviously the high schools, uh, the kids are very interested in this stuff. And mm -hmm. you don't need a lot of land to build a community garden. And the community garden, as far as I'm concerned, can double as a rainwater collective. Uh, you do the composting, you do the, you know, horticulture, bee farms, all that. But as far as I can tell, if you have the space, there's really no reason not to be doing municipal rainwater collection at a community garden. Yeah. It just makes sense. And I think that is something 
that could be the start. And mm-hmm. moving in on that, knowing that the schools will be in control of it, I think could have a huge impact. Absolutely. And we've seen that be a really nice way to both tie people to where they're where food comes from, where the water to supply that food comes from, and really a strong educational opportunity as well as an environmental opportunity. So where do we need to start? First of all, how can we, how can people read? Um, I know this book is pricey. I saw it. Like I know yeah. it's, a big, it's like a, it's a big text. So where can people at least read your chapter and like, how could we get that? From? So probably the best thing for them to do is to get in touch with me. I'm very findable by name in college um, and okay. get in touch with me and I can help them out with that. Um, so yeah, if you just Google Sarah Soik at Randolph College, you can find me pretty easily. Um, and that's, I think the best way to do it. It's yeah. Academic publishing is its own um yeah so it's it's its own world um but yeah just get get in touch with me and what should we be doing what should we be doing from an activist organizing standpoint in terms of who are the people that are really like the decision makers on a lot of these things like who do we need to be basically lobbying to get this stuff done so i think one of the things is really lobbying for um clearer guidelines i know that sounds goofy because I usually am not someone who's like, we need more regulations. But if you say, this is how you do this, and this is how you do this well, and this is what we will approve within our city and say, yes, this is something acceptable. I think that's honestly one of the hurdles. Um, We find that I think a decent number of people are excited about the idea of rainwater harvesting. Um, Like you said, it makes really good sense. We have all of this water (laughs) coming down. It's actually causing a problem because we're not doing anything with it. So it makes good sense to do something. Um, tell me how I can do it legally (laughs) and what can I do with it? Because I think people often picture rain barrels when they think of rainwater harvesting, which are great and wonderful, but are just the like tip of the iceberg of the potential. It's, you know, a far step from a rain barrel to a 50,000 gallon system supplying all the toilets at an elementary school. But when people start to see that potential, I think it's also where it starts to really make sense. Right, which is why it needs to be done at the big level. That's yeah. the whole, that's my point. And I think if people realize that much like everything we seem to waste in this country, we waste water like it's going out of style and it is going to go out of style. It's going to oh, go out yeah. of your ability to drink because as, as the saying goes, Professor, you can't eat money and you can't drink oil. And that is where the rubber meets the road. And no matter how much money and resources you think you have, you're not going to be able to save yourself from the catastrophe that's coming if we don't do something about it now. Anything you want to plug before you go, please do. The floor is yours. Uh, No, I just thank you all. I think I am always excited to see more people excited about the potential of rainwater harvesting. I think it's something that can make a really huge difference in a number of ways. And, you know, we haven't actually talked about, it's also a way to sometimes get safer drinking water in places where the original supplies are pretty contaminated or unavailable, right? We have lots of places where people are on groundwater wells that are no longer really safe groundwater wells. And so what if we do potable rainwater harvesting for some of those homes and things like that? So there's a lot of potential um, available there from something that's really a really ancient practice that we can revive and I think learn a lot from and gain a lot from. Thank you so much. It, it was like, it was very strange. I'm driving. I had this thought and then there, sure enough, this is a thing. So I really appreciate you coming on and talking with us about this. Yeah. Thank you. We're definitely going to make it a much bigger deal now, and a lot of people will see this. So, guys, rainwater harvesting, 
This is going to be a new thing. We're going to make it a big deal. <laughs> Professor, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. We will definitely be in touch. Thank you all. Bye. Have a good night. Bye. Well, that was very informative. Uh, yeah, we need to be like, this is something too that should just be happening in all sorts of places. Like this should be the norm. It should be the norm, like having, you know, highways and, you know, pipes and sewage and all other sorts of infrastructure. Why are we not just doing that? If everywhere it was pouring down the highway, if every one of those like big holes that was just like pouring was actually being collected, that's like significant. That's what I kept thinking. No, I agree 100 percent. And this is again, this is just another uh, this is a common sense solution. This is not complicated. And most of the solutions that exist don't require technology. We just right. have to use the earth as it is intended. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people who don't want that. Um, they really just want to pillage the hell out of it because that's what's financially beneficial. Uh, Marco is asking if we have a bootlicker this week, a ham asking for a friend. So I'm not sure about what he is talking to you. Are you aware? Is there some particular bootlicky situation that has happened this week that I am not aware of? Well, Max boot liquor would have definitely been uh, a good idea. Sandra. Yes. And composting toilets are actually very popular. If you, um, what's that, what, what are those uh, things on YouTube called again, the uh, tiny houses or no, the I'm, living off the grid people? Well, all of those things. I mean, I, I, yeah, the composting toilet is definitely something that's, you know, great for off the grid. All right. Well, I hate to do this because obviously I've been holding it in, but can I, uh, can I trust you to hold it down for literally 60 seconds? I have to go. What to is it you need me to do? What is it you would like for me to do? Talk to the audience. I got to go to the bathroom. I'll be right back. Oh, for God's sake. This is because Peter always schedules is he's got big eyes and a small stomach. He schedules as many things as close to each other back to back and thinks that everything will just flow perfectly smoothly from one event to another. He never has a buffer. There's never a buffer. So um, that was really cool. I knew there was a way that we could be doing better with the monsoons that are coming in. We're going to be drowning by them one way or the other people. If we don't start collecting the water, we're not going to be, we're going to just need, seriously, we're going to need an arc and we're not going to have drinking water. I don't know how to be more you know, clear about that. So we're past the qualification uh, deadline for people running for office. Friday was the qualification deadline at noon. Uh, we're currently working with... Um, a slate of candidates that are running for uncontested Florida House seats. Um, I'm not sure how many ultimately qualified from our group, but it's a pretty big, it's a pretty big group. I want to say there might even be 14 people on this slate. And um, that, you know, all of these, I think with one exception, are uncontested, meaning there's no Democrat in the race. It's just what it, and but yet they're close enough in terms of um, manageable to move to the blue. And not that that's like my priority, but I like the idea of just getting candidates into uncontested races. I think that's really important. So my understanding is that the person we were supposed to be speaking with this evening, we're supposed to be speaking with candidate was Nomiki Konst, who is, um, uh, I'm not sure if she says she's a journalist. I'm not exactly sure. I know she's like a political pundit and, 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 sort of a political analyst, but she is actually running for um, a state house seat in New York. I guess it's a new state house district that is somewhere from Queens 
over to the, some eastern parts of um, Manhattan. I know that some, I think Gramercy Park and Stuyvesant in town. But uh, she ended up canceling us, which doesn't surprise me because when people are running for office, it's crazy. So we get canceled on. That's fine. I, I My understanding is that we do have another candidate that's going to be joining us in a little bit. Um, I'm not I don't want to say who it is because I could be wrong. But my understanding is that we do have another candidate that's going to be joining us. And now that we've passed our qualification period here, it's going to start being, I think, quicker. Uh, July, I don't think. There are too many, I don't even know if there's any primaries coming up in July. So then it'll be pretty quick before we hit August and hit all of our primaries that we have coming up. Uh, we're pretty close to the end. You have me sitting here rambling about primaries and politics and people qualifying and blah, 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 blah. Don't you have something you want to like pontificate about today, Peter? Believe it or not, Peter isn't at home. Please leave a message at the beat. I must be out or I would pick up the phone. Where could I be? Believe it or not, I'm not home. That's still one of the greatest things ever. I don't know why. It just came to me when I was walking in. I was like, oh, yeah. George, Jerry. Oh, my God. Do I know you? All right, Dirtbag Leftist is asking, isn't Nomiki splitting the progressive vote? Yes, she is. Okay, and, so there's your answer. And, I don't know about that district. I don't know about that race. Who else and, is in that race? Well, well, and and I will say this. Yes, Nomiki is splitting the progressive vote, and she has every right to do it if that's what she wants to do. Who else is in that race? Uh, this lady, Kristen Gonzalez, has been endorsed by AOC, DSA, you know, a whole bunch of relevant people. And but, after that, but after those endorsements, then Nomiki got in. She yeah. made it sound like it was just like a new district was created and that's why she decided to do it. Well, I mean, it is a new district. Technically, they endorsed uh, Kristen when it was the previous district. But I mean, look, it is what it is. It's not um, the prettiest of things and. Yes, uh, no, Mickey was supposed to come on the podcast tonight, but scheduling conflict. We are going to have a very good guest. Okay, you know what, though? We should ask. We should ask if, if, you know, because this happened when they reschedule, we should make Walker come on with her. Yeah, that'd be fine. At least then he can run interference for her. Well, no, just because I like him. So before I like him too. Walker, if, if that's sort of, you know. Yeah, it'd be a good, good. conversation. And, and yeah. again, uh, but there was a major story today, as you guys know, um, something that we weren't sure was ever going to come down the pike, but it has, uh, <laughs> former mayor of Tallahassee and former democratic nominee for governor in 2018, Andrew Gillum has been indicted on federal, uh, criminal charges, uh, wire fraud being one of them, which is serious business. Um, he's very likely, um, going to go to prison. Uh, the FBI does not get involved with criminal cases unless they're going to nail somebody to the wall and they do it over 95% of the time. So he's not the only person who's under federal investigation in the state of Florida, who's in politics. I will say that, uh, not a surprise either. Uh, but in this case, but you know what it is. I mean, you know, when we say wire fraud, I think that, you know, that that kind of seems like it could be a lot of different things. But, I, you know, from what I understand, it's basically that he and whoever his partner in this endeavor um, 
were collecting money for an organization that was, I don't know if it was a nonprofit or whatever, but it was, it had whatever its intended goals were to do. And apparently people were donating to this organization and they were just living off of it. He was, he was taking the money. The person was taking the money into the organization and then cutting payroll checks but they weren't doing anything with the organization. So it basically sounds like it's money laundering through a, like a facade organization. Um, but I just think that when you hear uh, wire fraud, that you, you know, that's a broad that like, what does that mean? So in this case, it, it to me, it sounds like they were basically collecting money for a purpose that they didn't use it for and basically um, skimming it from an organization. I don't know if I agree with that, Rob. I don't. I, I think what um, I think what Andrew went through was something that he wasn't going to be able to come back from, and created such havoc um, that it became uh, basically an unforgivable act. Um, he also made a lot of mistakes. You know, we've gone over them before, but you know, he ran a great primary race, and he ran a very subpar general election race, and. He should have beat DeSantis. He should have. And now DeSantis is tracking to be the next president of the United States as a result of the mistake. Yeah. Um, and that's how fast things change in politics. But what doesn't change is how disgusting the Democratic establishment is for two reasons. Number one, they decided that it was necessary to pile on Gillum today, uh, not just for his indiscretions, but to pile on. Of course, Jen, what a surprise. Pile on progressives who voted for him in the primary instead of voting for Gwen Graham or voting for Philip Levine. Right, so, we're the problem. We're it's, the problem. It's our fault that we voted for Gillum. And that, to me, really speaks to what people in the non-corporate movement have to understand. They're never going to like you. They're never going to accept you. You are in the way of big business, and that is it. That is what they, that's all they care about. Blaming progressives? What the hell do you think is going to happen in five months? Who do you think is going to get blamed for losing the midterms? Right. You know, and it, you know, when I hear people saying, referencing, um, like when you hear certain smear campaigns or certain ways that the right really talks about Democrats, and they say things like Joe Biden's radical left agenda. And I hear things like that, and I think if that's what people are considering the radical left, we are in for a very rude awakening, people. Yeah, we are. And I I think people just don't understand that when the margins get so thin, and they really don't understand, you know, just how precarious these circumstances are because the infrastructure is so poor. You know, it all gets back to Debbie and everything else that's wrong with the Florida Democratic Party. So what Billy Corbin put out on social media about it, you know, he feels like he was tricked. Yeah, again, it's like no one wants to talk about the fact that Ron DeSantis is not only an incumbent governor, but he is extremely popular with the Republican Party and independents. It doesn't matter what the Democrats think because he doesn't need their vote. So when I see Occupy Democrats putting out a poll, push poll, let's be honest, it's what it is, 
saying that they did a poll that shows that Charlie Crist is up one percentage point on Ron DeSantis. I'd like to see the full detail in that poll. I want to know who you're polling, where you're polling them, and how many are getting polled. There's just no way. They did a poll. I remember this very well. They did a poll, I want to say, at the end of the fall in 2015 that suggested that Hillary was up 59 points on Bernie in Iowa. Right. 59 points. But what you didn't know and what you didn't see was that the poll was a very carefully constructed poll, which basically only polled people that were over the age of 65, and they only polled registered Democrats, and it was only a sample of about 300 people. Now, I don't know about you, but in a state of 21 million people, if you're polling a few hundred people, and another thing that people have to remember about polling in politics, especially after what the Democrats have pulled the last six years, Republicans lie when they get polled. In fact, they will say that Charlie Chris is who they're supporting, and in reality, they're supporting Ron DeSantis. So don't forget that there is a lot of dishonesty in how this is done. And it's also done for the purpose of raising money. Let's be honest, if there isn't a competitive primary, then what the hell's the point? No one's going to give money. So if you put a poll out there that suggests this, okay, maybe might be competitive. And I like Charlie, but Ron DeSantis has out fundraised the Democrats seven, eight to one. I mean, and he's not even really campaigning that hard. So like I said, I, I get it, but the fact that the Demo- the Florida Democratic Party couldn't figure out a way to get Nikki Freed to endorse Charlie and make this potentially a competitive primary, knowing that Charlie has a 25-point lead on Nikki. And I, I don't really, I mean, honestly, I, I don't, I'm not getting the vibe from Nikki that She's really out there campaigning to try to either win. Well, she is obviously in, in her own mind. She's trying to win for herself. Sure. But I don't see her as this person who's out there like actively like trying to help Charlie and help the party build momentum. Now, I think we could both agree that's what Annette Tadeo was doing. Is that fair? Well, I mean, yeah, she, you know, she's ultimately a team player with that. I mean, I really did think she was going to end up being running with him. Um, on his ticket, but then, you know, she jumped into that race down in 27, which then I think, well, maybe that was the strategy all along because with certain people and, and she is one of them, they're just like professional political runners. Like there's certain people that just always seem to be running for something like part of their, their job is running. They have a career out of running for office. So I don't know with her what that is. I don't know how much of it is really being supportive versus, you know, being opportunistic. I Maybe both. I have no idea. Well, I think, again, this is one of the big problems within the party infrastructure that we talk about all the time. Um, it seems to be one thing after the other after the other. But now that the one at the time, the one true rising star who had an FBI investigation going now apparently has more than that, Lord knows how many heads may roll. It wouldn't surprise me in the least if Gillum takes a plea deal 
and may give up certain people. That wouldn't surprise me at all, especially being that he's in his early 40s and he's got three kids. I mean, he is ripe to make a deal. Well, the then, okay, who do you think, who's the big fish that he's turning in? Who's he hey, giving them? Hey, listen, we don't have to name you know what happens to people that mess with, you know, you don't want to think he's going to get Arkansas-ed. And no, we don't want to think that he's going to say the wrong thing. But you know what? There's a lot of things that are going to develop from this. That's the thing that people really don't understand is that I, I do believe this is just my opinion, but I do believe that Gillum was set up. I do believe that. Um, I, I think that like a lot of people who go into politics in somewhat of a naive fashion, they trust the wrong people and they end up getting their hooks in them. So they know that they're, they're owned. If Gillum had won and became the governor, he likely would have been dealing with the same problem. Although as governor, he wouldn't have been able to accomplish anything because he would have been dealing with a, and again, this is all reflective on how poor the Florida Democratic Party really is. He would have been dealing with a GOP House and Senate. So he would have been getting bills that he would have basically been encouraged not to sign. He would have basically been having to use veto power for four years. And, you know, what being a lame duck governor doesn't really do you any favors. Yeah, you know, you can avoid having any real bad bills get passed, but, you know, ultimately he made a lot of unforced errors. And we look back on it now and just think if he had trusted his instincts and did it the right way, I, I think he would have won. I, I think he was that close. I think going to that synagogue in, in Pembroke Pines with uh, Wasserman Schultz and Bloomberg was a big mistake, not just because they did it as a photo op, but because there was no reason to be trying to court additional voters in Broward. That's where he was strongest. He needed to be going to parts of the state where he needed to be making those inroads and those votes. I like Chris King. He's a friendly guy. I think he, you know, if, if Andrew had picked uh, Gwen Graham as his running mate, I think he would have had a much better opportunity to win. Um, I don't know that she would have necessarily done that, though. You know, that's not necessarily something that she would have agreed to. I think that a lot of what happened to him was being set up. I think he was like, when I look at the people that he was palling around with, I think they didn't want someone like him to really win. So they, you know, it, their, their advice to me ranges from just incompetent to nefarious. And it's hard to know which. I do think he was set up, but I also think he made a lot of very poor choices. I definitely agree with that. And our incoming guests will definitely be able to speak on that as well. Uh, like I said, I, I liked Andrew. Um, I got along with him very well. Uh, I think he obviously, like I said, he was two different candidates in the primary and in the general. Um, but the one thing that I really did not like today, and then listen, Andrew's going to have his day in court and things will be very interesting. But there were a lot of people that felt the need to pile on to Andrew in a way and pile on to progressives and say that it was our fault that Ron DeSantis is not only governor, but is going to be the next president, that it's our fault that we voted for Andrew in the primary, that where, where we are now, I, the, the delusion is, is amazing. But I guess when you have to, when you have to keep up appearances and always make it so that corporate special interests are never at fault for why we don't get where we are going to go. Yeah. You know, that's that's going to be the recipe of the day. And people have to accept that that is where we're headed right now. 
So without further ado, we are very excited to bring on a wonderful guest who we did have the opportunity to meet recently, who is running for a very important position in the state, Commissioner of Agriculture. Most, we would say the, the buck pretty much stops there. This is the position that current gubernatorial candidate Nikki Fried has held for the last four years. It's going to be a tough uphill battle in a red wave year, but it is very important that we get really awesome candidates running who can also help build momentum for local candidates. There is this thing about running as a slate, running on the issues that really matter. And so without further ado, we are very pleased to welcome for the first time and definitely not the last time, J.R. Galay, welcome to Generational Change. Hey, how are you? Good to Hi, see you again. Jen, Peter, it's good to be here. Uh, I don't know what happened to my background, but okay. Is it fancy? Yeah, but I thought there was a background turned on. I don't know what happened. Oh, we'll give you a second. See if you can make it fancier. It's all good. I mean, we did when our show first started. Oh, oh now that's a lovely home. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, except how do I uh, get out of it? And there Why you go. You that works. That, all right, that works. There you go. So obviously it was a big day today. You officially announced that you are on the ballot for the August primary to become the next commissioner of agriculture in the state of Florida. Yes. So what's that been like? And obviously, how do you feel things are lining up so far at potentially becoming the nominee? Well, uh, it was a really, really good launch. The response has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, I just trying to speak truth to power. You know, uh, the Republicans have put Florida up for sale for the longest time and mm -hmm. the middle class and the poor are the ones who are getting screwed. So am I allowed to say screwed? Can I cuss? I don't know. You can you'd be surprised what people say on the show. So, yeah, <laughs> so I, I just wanted to make sure. Um, yeah. So it's been overwhelmingly positive. As you guys know, I got into this race late. And uh, so I'm, I'm playing catch up. Uh, the Republican has eight million dollars in the bank. It's um, it's near impossible. We can sit here and talk about all the different deficiencies in terms of what the party, the state party, has done and so forth. Uh, but you know that's neither near nor there. This is a seat we have to defend. I have two primary opponents. Um, God bless them. I look forward to debating them on the issues, but I invite everyone to actually compare all of us together. Um, and let's talk policy. Let's talk real substance. Um, and I think this is where I differ. This is so where. So, what do you think, JR? What do you think the key issues are going to be? I mean, I don't think people, first of all, realize what that office does. Like, because it isn't just somebody who oversees farmers. I mean, there is that, but it's like, it's, this is the, it's like a consumer protection agency essentially for the, for the state. And, and so like, what do you see in Florida are the key things that need to be dealt with from that executive position? Okay. So you're absolutely correct. Uh, the job is about 30% covers agriculture. So the title of it, the full title is Commissioner of Agriculture and Consumer Protection. But 99% of the time, the consumer protection part is left out. And people just hear agriculture commissioner. And if you ask 99% of people, they think it's the person whose picture is on the gas tank. Yeah. That's pretty much what they know. 
but the biggest part of it has to do actually with their consumer protection. Right now, the whole nation, but Florida specifically, is in a crisis. Uh, prices are out of control. These companies are gouging customers. And as your next agriculture commissioner and consumer protection, I would be the person in charge to put a stop to that. Uh, what's happening is when you go to the grocery store today, compared to before the pandemic, you would buy a bag of, let's say, chicken. Okay. And the bag says, hey, 15 pounds, 12 pounds. You pick a number. You were paying 17, between 17 and $20. The same bag now is costing you $30. But when you pick it up, if you look, it feels a little lighter. The chicken pieces are a little smaller. So the chicken farmers did not, did, didn't start producing smaller chicken. That's not the problem. What's happening is you are paying double the price for less. The bag that says 15 pounds, nobody, okay, goes home and says, hey, 15 pounds, let me put it on a scale. You assume that you are getting 15 pounds. You are not. In 12 pounds, 13 pounds, 13 and a quarter. It's a violation of state law. It's a violation of federal law. My office, the office of... Consumer protection would be the one in charge of prosecuting this to making sure that this does not happen. Okay. Now, for example, in Florida, you have cattle, chicken farms. Most of these products, the meats, for example, they go out of state. We bring in meat from other states for Florida. The parts that stay in Florida has to do with watermelon, um, oranges, lemon, Strawberries, blueberries. Florida is the first to get homegrown products. The citrus and orange juice part of it is in a very big crisis. And the other part of it has to do with plant pathology. I've already been in touch with several people, especially uh, at the University of Florida, who the head of the plant pathology department, studying, analyzing the problem. How do we save the citrus and orange uh, community? Uh, tomatoes is another one that's starting to get affected. And then we need to look at other products like tea uh, to bring into Florida. But the consumer protection part, again, is the biggest thing. People are getting ripped off. Um, as the Satan has expanded its executive powers, these executive powers now also expand to the members of the cabinet. This being one of those cabinet positions, you can use the emergency rule Okay, under uh, that chapter 570 talks about, and you could use that to literally, especially when it, I think it's section 125.36, to issue an emergency rule to force these companies to lower prices. And a lot of cases, what that will do, that will force the governor's hand to call a special legislative session. Now, that's a whole other problem. At the beginning, I heard uh, Peter talked about slate candidates. This is why, again, it's important because the more candidates you have and uh, myself and a few others try to recruit about 20, 25 candidates that were going to go unchallenged. I think you guys were a part of that as well. Mm -hmm. um, we need those slate of candidates for people to know exactly what is going on. So people are paying I paid $79 to fill up my tank today, $79 for someone who has to go to work, who doesn't have some of the resources that I have, who doesn't have money saved up in the bank. 
That's a lot. <clears throat> Florida has passed a, a, a resolution to raise the minimum, which is $15. Wilson Simpson, the president of the Senate, which will be most likely be the Republican nominee, um, has, Esch has put forth laws and bills to keep that minimum wage from being raised. How do you justify $79? There's no public transportation in Florida. So you have to drive everywhere. Yep. Okay. How is it that in a state this big, this size, you can't take a high speed train from Jacksonville to Miami? Um, or we can't even get has- to Orlando. Right. We can't that- even get the bright line to Orlando from West Palm Beach. That, that, and that's insane. Yes. So that has to change. So my office works with the legislature to write. We would write the bill. Heck, the bill is already written. All they got to do is bring it forward to a vote. And then here's the best part. I can sue the governor. I can sue the legislature and force their hand. And the attorney general has to defend my lawsuit that mm. I bring forward. So that's the big part of it. That they, People are suffering. People are struggling. This is really what I don't want to talk about. There's so many others. So, I think it goes without saying that the importance of running for this seat, and it very often gets forgotten, is, again, having a slate, having a real grassroots uh, buildup within the party infrastructure of non-corporate candidates can really mitigate a lot of the problems that exist because people are really fed up with the way things have been going for a number of years now. Uh, we see, obviously, again, we talked about it just briefly, um, obviously what happened with Andrew Gillum, and that's, of course, going to be a big story that they're going to talk about forever. We've very often, I think that this is just a Democratic Party problem to begin with, is there's too much of this top-down approach to politics. It needs to be a bottom-up approach. So if you, could talk, if you could talk about you know, what it's been like connecting with some of these individuals who will potentially be running for, you know, let's say state house or even city council, county commission, things like that. I think that to me is a huge deal, regardless of it's just one election cycle. It's something that builds over time, but it also is something that if we're doing collectively could be very effective, even in the short term and could really help, let's say your chances of potentially getting not only the nomination, but being competitive in the general. Absolutely. It is extremely important. Um, I've spoken to so many candidates across the state, and some of them have been discouraged. We've lost a few that after the obstacles that were put up by the local party chairs, uh, they said, you know what? This just isn't worth it for me. I am not going to do this. Uh, You talk about it's the perfect sizing. I'm going to borrow that going forward. Bottom up, you know, from the bottom and rise up, not from the top down. What's happening is we had some candidates in in Port St. Lucie and parts of Orlando, um, parts of Tampa, uh, even in Miami and Broward, uh, pretty much everywhere in the state, that when the individual filed the paperwork, they get a call from the party local officials and says, who are you? Why are you running? I don't want you in this race. There's been cases where uh, a black woman was trying to run in an area and the DC chair says this should go to a white person. That's the insanity we're talking about. Um, There's a culture 
of ingrain. It's the same people, the same consultants that keep getting paid for the last 25 years who have lost races all over the state for the last 25 years. But somehow these people are still getting paid. So that that is one of the big things that I have tried to emphasize a lot to people in politics. And one of the reasons why the Democratic Party as a whole manages to fail so mightily every once in a while, they get lucky, like Trump completely mishandling COVID. But overall, I would say the biggest difference in terms of the party infrastructure when it comes to, let's say, consultants or strategists, whatever you want to call them. Uh, in the Republican Party, you have to win to get hired. Absolutely. In the Democratic Party, you can be a 10-time loser and you they'll still hire you. Yeah, it's, it's unconceivable, uh, but totally believable because that is what has been happening. Um, you can't, they do not adapt they're using certain programs and tactics that are integrated that just do not work anymore. And they are behind what the Republicans are doing. Um, you know, uh, so there's a lot of folks that are trying to change that. You guys, for example, being out here talking about this, I appreciate it so much. Uh, people like Adam Christensen, who has taken, you know, uh, who has taken a lead role in helping recruit and building some kind of software. Uh, to put forward to compete and acquiring data. There's a, so we, there is hope coming, and we have some people in the legislature who are true superstars uh, in terms of what they do for their jobs, for their constituents. Somebody like Anna Escamani or Angie Nixon, Trevor Jones, you know, uh, Carlos Guillermo, uh, those people, Michelle, they, I can name a few, but there's not enough. These people need help. So... Yeah. That is what we're trying to do is get candidates on the ballot. More competition is healthy, but uh, you keep losing and you keep getting hired and you keep doing the same tactics. It's literally the definition of insanity. You just keep banging your head against a damn wall and expecting a different outcome. That's just not going to work. Well, that's all, that's also something to be said for the corporate monopolization of the Democratic Party in the state, which has been at it for a while. We know who some of the biggest players are, obviously our congresswoman here in Broward. Uh, one of the things that I don't think, I mean, this is just, and again, it's just, it's just observation, but there is a very solid candidate running for Congress right now in Orlando named Maxwell Frost. And I think he has an excellent chance of winning that seat. Is he in the tent? Oh, that yeah. is Congressional District 10. And there's also, like 50 people. There's also like 50 people running. So yeah. now all of a sudden, this guy's catching momentum, serious momentum, and he's fundraising. So let's get a couple of more Democratic candidates in the race. If people can't see the setup on this, if they can't see why this is being done, if they can't see why certain candidates are only going to go to one place and they're not going to challenge other people that need to be challenged, quite frankly, then you're seeing the remnants of this old guard, JR, as you know, that just don't want to let it go. And if you want to get them to let it go, you got to pry it from their cold, dead hands. It's the only way. <laughs> Good movie analogy there, Peter. Mm. <laughs> so, and, 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 you know, what was that? Former head of the NRA, the guy who also used it quite a bit. So, 
but we have so many problems here in Florida. Um, and people need a reason. And the biggest reason right now is their wallets. Yeah. It's too expensive. Everything is out of control. And these companies are profiting. Um, I don't know if you guys got a chance to see my launch video that came out today. I saw it. Okay. So, and this is why I talk about this. These companies, they pay these politicians. They raise tons of money. How do you think Simpson got $8 million already? Corporate and, special interest money. Period. And you got, you got to pay it back. And you okay. pay it back with favors. Which, and they've redesigned and restructured the laws so they're not prosecuted. And at the same time, you look at situations where um, it's, it's what's the word I'm looking for? It's not partisan, but it's very clear. If a person of color, okay, black or Latino, does the same thing, it's quick for them to be prosecuted and they end up in jail. But the reality is the minorities, people of color, people that look like me, people who speak a different language, okay, who really need help? If anything is out of what, out of the, hey, they go to jail, but the other folks, the white folks, they get away with it. It's like, why isn't Donald Trump indicted already? You know, so that that's a whole other story we're not going to get into. But uh, anybody so who should watch these January six hearings ought to be sick to their stomach. Why do you think so many people? when presented with the evidence of just how bad things really are and the honest reality of why things are the way that they are, that their attitude is knee-jerk to, well, that's just how it is. Not they that, don't know any better. And we've been trained and beaten down to say that's just the way it is. The rich just get richer, okay? And everybody else, you got to struggle along. Well, it's time to tax the fucking rich, Okay, that that's just okay. <laughs> no, but it's, you told me I can cuss, so I'm just being yeah. and have at it. Woo! Okay, so I, it, it's it, you. You get people who own companies who are putting rockets in space for crying out loud. Okay, and we won't even talk about the the symbol issues with the way these things look. All right, but <laughs> when people are actually suffering. Um, they're not getting paid. I mean, to think about it, that the Republicans are trying to lower the minimum wage in Florida. Fair district pass. And everything they've done is broken the fair districts. And people are just like, hey, that, you know, what are we going to do? Why? Things are so expensive. They worry about their bills. They got to keep a roof over their head, pay their rent, which is freaking out of control. That has to stop. That has to be brought down. This is where consumer protection, again, will come in, okay, to put some pressure on the industry, put some freeze on some stuff. Uh, food is out of control. And the reason food is out of control is Donald Trump and the Republicans completely broke the supply chain. No one's talking about that, the reason. And then, listen, I'm not a fan of everybody, okay, but when someone's to blame, all right, there's plenty of blame to go around. But the reality is certain things have nothing to do. Uh, Democrats are trying. Their hands are tied with the Senate. But that's neither neither nor there because I'm not running for Congress. I'm not running for national spotlight. I want to help people in Florida. I want to help put money back in people's pockets. One of the things I'd like to mention real quick, uh, 
anybody in the state of Florida who's got a child that goes to school, you have to have a lunch account, a, a meal account for your child. When you and I go to the grocery store, we use our debit card or credit card to purchase, whether it's shopping at a mall, grocery store, online. There's what's called a market rate. The market rate is somewhere between three and three and a half percent. So you swipe that card, you spend $20. The merchant, for making it easy for the transaction, takes three, three and a half percent. Well, one company has the contracts for all of the 68 counties in the state of Florida for all the school districts. In 2019, they made $1.47 billion with a fucking B in profit. When a child doesn't have money, after a while, they put it in negative and they charge. They're charging 30%, 30%. There's a lawsuit moving to the courts right now to recover about half a million dollars to rebate parents. You know what Simpson has already said? He's going to put a stop to the lawsuit because if you don't like capitalism, get out of America. And run, and, a, run away capitalism. Yeah. So this is what the job is about. This is why I'm running. This is why I change. When I say, hey, I know what they're doing, I do. Because I've bailed their asses out so many times. And I'm sick of it. Florida is particularly predatory in a lot of ways. Like, you know, we've got like a serious payday lender problem in this state. Like the, the violations of consumers are pretty rampant here. It's pretty bad. And something that, that never ceases to amaze me, and we've talked about it with other things, that when you look at states who are usually at the bottom in terms of things like healthcare, education, infrastructure, they're usually the poor states, except Florida. Florida is one of the top richest states in the country, yet our education is always around the bottom. All of our infrastructure, it, we can't even get public transportation, like we don't all have of these things. Right. And it's like, you know, nor we are surrounded in that category among some of the poorest states in the country. And we're one of the richest states in the country. And so to me, when I hear that, it's de facto corruption. Oh, That's it absolutely it is. is. It, it is. They're stealing. They're robbing people blind. Yeah. And, and people don't understand. They distract you with don't say gay or CRT. Yeah. Uh, you know, you said it. They come up with a bunch of crap that they get you focusing over over here. Hey, look what I have in my right hand. But, you know, don't know what the left hand's doing. Right. Here's, a great, here, here's a primary example of somebody who's running for statewide office on the fact that we can't afford to live in this state. Yeah. With all due respect, and we fully support the LGBTQ community, if you're going to put up countless billboards that say it's okay to say gay instead of we have the highest rent in the United States and it's a BS that we're allowing the GOP to get away with this. Who are you appealing to? What are you trying to accomplish by spending all of that money on these endless billboards? If you were spending on, on an issue like housing, I think you'd get a lot of attention. And I think a lot of people would be asking questions and they might just be interested in getting involved with whatever your cause is. That's just me. And I think the same is true when we're talking about our most important commodities like agriculture, farming, municipal rainwater was something we were talking about before, being able to harvest municipal rainwater. 
I mean, there are so many pressing issues that I believe most people agree on. But we always manage, as you said, JR, to get distracted by the bright, shiny object. And it's been going on forever. And I think we have to make a collective effort within the non-corporate movement to say, we're going to talk about the issues that really affect us on our everyday lives. We support LGBTQ rights, but there are issues that are really destroying us. And if we don't make it a priority, you know, Florida's, uh, well, I mean, Florida look, it's going to be, yeah, be, like, right be like the old Mickey, uh, the old uh, Bugs Bunny uh, meme with him uh, sawing Florida off the rest of the United States and letting it sink into the Atlantic. By the way, the 25th, I believe, I may be off on the number, I may be wrong, but I think we've lost 25 home insurance companies in Florida. Not surprising. How can okay. you insure how can you insure properties that are along the waterline, especially in Miami, where every time it rains with, with any little bit of rain. So oh, yeah. there's not enough money. There's a, I can't think of the company's name, but it's a state insurance company. More people have had to join that. Um, two years ago, I get a letter that says, hey, we are canceling your homeowner's insurance uh, because your roof is too old. Well, I happened to have replaced my roof the two years prior. I had to spend six hours countless emails and phone calls, taking pictures of the roof. I had pictures when the roof was changed to say, I have a new roof. My roof is not 20 years old. Oh, you can keep your insurance, but it's now $1,300 higher than you paid last year. Okay. And now try filing a claim. You, it, it's, we're not going to cover this. We're not going to cover that. What the hell do I have insurance for? I feel the same way. I think that the way that our money is, um, you know, <laughs> the way that it's manipulated so that we're basically paying for something that we'll never really get a benefit from, it is a scam. And that's what we're trying to change. And it's no different than, you know, trying to have, you know, the consumer protection factor that comes with being the commissioner of agriculture. There are many layers to this. And I think, again, it's very important. That's why we wanted to have you on. This is a very important position, and these are very important issues that are under your purview. And that, to me, really speaks to the greater issues that are facing us as a state, because it is getting completely out of sight, out of mind. Real estate market is absolutely crazy. Cost of rent is absolutely crazy. The cost of basic goods, fruits, vegetables, poultry, beef. Seafood. Everything. It is unbelievably expensive. And the fact that that has not been the central focus of almost every talking point, housing, you know, that that could be everything. And that's why you running for this position, I think, is very important. I hope it is a competitive primary. I hope that whoever ends up winning has some momentum going into the general election, because right now we need it really, really badly. Jay, uh, JR, this is your website. Guys, please yes. check out the launch video. Please get involved if you can. Uh, JR, we are very appreciative that you came on the show this evening. If you have any final thoughts, please share them. We're so grateful that you did come on, and hopefully we'll be speaking with you again as well.
Absolutely. I look forward to coming back on the show. Uh, it's been an honor and a privilege. And final thoughts I'd like to say to everyone listening, watching, the reason I'm running is to change your lives. Uh, I will say this. If you give me the honor to be your next commissioner of agriculture and consumer protection, I will not jump ship after four years and seek higher office. I will stay there and do the job because there are issues that need to be fixed that cannot be fixed in the first two, three, four years. I'm not going to start running for some other office the minute I get there. Okay. You have my word. You have my promise. That's number one. I'm going to fight. The environment needs help. We still have an algae problem. We've got sugarcane burning happening down in South Florida that is causing all sorts of health. I am prepared to fight to legally challenge these issues in court. I need help, though. Visit my website that is there, jrgayo.com. Make a contribution, whatever you can. My Republican opponent has $8 million. I can't do this without your help. Spread the word. Talk about me. Share the video. Um, go to my Twitter, at jrgayo. And feel free to reach out to me directly. I may not get back to you right away, but I'm going to get back to you um, because I do get a lot of messages. But make a contribution, $5, 10 15 25 $100, $500, whatever you can. I know things are hard, and it's the old adage, you got to spend money to make money, but I'm going to say this to you. Your money is going to put to good use. Um, I've been fighting, and I'm going to keep fighting, and I hope to earn your respect, your vote. JR, thank you so much. Guys, please check out the website, Get Involved. We hope to speak with you again soon, my friend. All right. Looking forward to it, guys. Have a great night. You do the same. Bye-bye. So as you can see, it is a process, especially in Florida, but we need to be supporting our candidates that are not on the corporate dole. Yeah, most people don't even pay attention to, to races like this. You know, and, and what happens and what concerns me, especially in years like this, where we really anticipate like a red wave, you know, on DeSantis's coattails, is that you get a lot of people elected down ballot into office that would otherwise not have been inspiring enough to get elected into office. But they're doing it just, you know, down ballot from whatever the wave is. I mean, the fact that the Democratic Party has so many seats that they're not even challenging Right. Or the fact that there are seats that could be challenged by an independent in so many areas and is not happening. It's and again, this is this is not Congress. I mean, Congress is a completely different animal and a completely different kind of operation. Running for state house in particular, it it's several thousand votes in many instances. You know, you could become a city council member for a thousand votes, maybe less. And yet all too often, people just want to chase the brass ring that's all the way. Oh, I'm going to run for president. Yeah, that's that's cute. I just hope that seems to be what people want to do is just run for the highest office instead of really, you know, taking a really good level of self-awareness. Yeah, we had that conversation about somebody we know, having that conversation with somebody we know about that somebody we know and basically saying we don't know what this person's doing. Could be serving it so much better and is a really good candidate, mind you. When we you know a few people like that. So what do we have coming up next week? I don't have the calendar in front of me at the moment. 
Okay, so what I have on my calendar for next Monday is we have the whole Washington folks coming on. Right. That's a big deal. So apparently yeah. whole Washington is getting some serious momentum with their ballot initiative out in Washington state for universal health care, which we fully support. I think that that is a really, really great deal. And we want to do everything we can to help that organization. Yeah. We all know why. Oh, there's so. my beret. So now I look like a French painter. Parlez-vous français? We have a we have a exquisite uh, healthcare in our country. We wish you American can have. You're right, Mario. He was lovely. He was lovely, but I knew him. I already knew him, so I guess I just forgot to say because it, it wasn't like the first time that I met him. But yeah. And then what else? Do we have anything else exciting coming up next week? I don't I, see anything else on the calendar per se. I don't think we have anything scheduled as of yet, but I'm working on it. We'll get. Uh, I and I know there was a candidate also. I think for Monday. I don't see one on the calendar. That doesn't mean you didn't book somebody, though. Sometimes yeah. you book people, but and then we can see about rescheduling Nomiki. Uh, what are you talking about, Jesse? How do you guys invite guests you don't know onto the show? Do you just send cut and paste emails, or do you have a more personal approach? We're all personal, man. We're a hundred percent personal. How we invite guests on the show is with today's guest. I literally saw something that made me think of municipal rainwater collection. And then I just started looking up and I found her as an author of an article. We get certain authors that do reach out and send us like, you know, early editions of their books to read and then have them on. So sometimes people do reach out to us, but no, we don't do like, like cat call, you know, cold call emailing like that. We, we generally have like a certain idea of what we want to discuss and then reach out to those people accordingly. I agree, Sandra. I think that that is how it's going to happen. Um, I think that it's, uh, it, it goes without saying, even though we're very friendly with the MMT community and especially with Steve Grumbine, a lot of them are very uh, adamant that, state uh, level approach can't work. Obviously, there are a number of restrictions in terms of the ability to get additional federal funding to make sure there are uh, stop gaps if there are any problems with the state run initiative. And we all know that the Democratic Party will be just as ruthless as the Republican Party to see statewide universal health care fail if it was ever to pass. Uh, but you got to start somewhere. And I believe because of the momentum that's been created from Bernie's two presidential runs, if a statewide universal health care system was, was able to pass, it would be completely different than anything that's ever been attempted in the past because now it's firmly within the American psyche that health care should be a right. It's just a question of whether we're going to get, when okay. we're going to get there. Drew says we should talk with the Vanguard guys. We have spoken with the Vanguard yeah. guys. And I thought- actually, we're actually, I, we, we are actually supposed to have them back on. So I'll, I'm going to shoot them an email. Yeah, we'll do that again. But we have spoken with the Vanguard guys. Yep. Um, and I appreciate it. I'm called a rational leftist. I appreciate that. I consider myself to be very reasonable. I'm also going to say, and I'm not going to say the person's name, but if there are people out there that have a cause that they're fighting for and they think affiliating with certain people of certain note at certain levels is going to help them get there, it's not. It's only going to hurt you. It doesn't matter how many subscribers they have on YouTube, how many shows they can sell out. You have to know that there are certain people that are 
a net negative in terms of what you're trying to do. And this goes for anybody. Uh, what Hall Washington is doing for their movement is great. And that's the model that should be followed. And I think more and more people need to recognize that it isn't going to be sexy. It's going to be a very tough road to get there. But what they are doing is an absolute good. And it, the way they've approached it has been an absolute good. They have a unifying message. They have a branding style, the Red Berets, for example. And they've been relentless. They're not giving up. And maybe that's what needs to happen. I mean, look, I do think that the New York Health Act has a puncher's chance, much more so than what's going on in California. But I think what, what Washington is doing with going for the ballot initiative, I think is a great idea. I think that that's where you can, we love you too, Drew. Um, Thank you. you know what, if you're new or you're not here, please subscribe and forward us, you know, share, yeah. share what we're doing. We get very suppressed on this line. Oh, we really do. But even though we are small and mighty, uh, yes, true. Uh, and of course, uh, the thing that the person who will not be named did the other day, in particular, it was uh, one of his guests that decided to suggest that the new president-elect of Colombia, President Petro, is a puppet of George Soros. Oh, my God. It's like, I mean, it's no different than anyone who says Russia, Russia, Russia every other minute. And remember, the reason people say these things is to get clicks, not to actually accomplish anything. We didn't come on to dogpile on Andrew Gillum. He's going to pay the price for what he did. We're trying to find solutions to the problems that exist, not talk about, oh, I was right, like a number of people today who wanted to say, oh, I told you that Andrew Gillum was a bad guy and he's blah, 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 blah. It's like, no, you're just as big a dick as he is. You're not solving any problems. You're making more. And people who simply can't get out of their own way. There are some people, Jen, I'm sure you would agree. You just can't help them. No. There are some people in the movement, and that includes some people we've actually had on this podcast. There are some people you can't help. They're TFGs. They're too far gone. And their intention isn't necessarily to fix the problem. It's to drag people down to where they are because they're in pain. And as you like to say, Jen. Hurt people hurt people. And Is that true. what you were going to say? Yeah, we're like, you know, we're like uh, pea, uh, we're like peas and carrots. Jenny. Uh, I can't call you, can't call you Jenny. That wouldn't Not work. if you want me to answer. <laughs> this is my Jenny. <laughs> All right. I don't hate the term grifter. I think the term grifter is very appropriate with a number of people. I think you have to know that there are people that are in it for the money. And the biggest kahuna of them all is in it for the money. And anyone that rides the coattails is in it for the money. Yeah. And there are some people who simply don't want to see others succeed, whether it's because of jealousy or disagreement. 
I will never forget how people treated Nina Turner, regardless of whether you agreed with her tactics or potentially people that she worked with. Nina is a great person who is really trying to do everything in her capacity to bring attention to the most important issues of our time. Even if you don't agree with all of her tactics to spend every waking moment talking about how much you hate her and how she should be doing this, that, and the other thing, like running in the other party. That has no ballot access anywhere. I just hope that enough people within this political movement that's been building for a number of years now are starting to smarten up about what needs to be done. There are many of instances where we're going to look to help and get involved uh, with certain causes and events and things like that. We're not going to get everything that we want, and it's not going to happen as quickly as we want. So for the people who are looking at it from the perspective of, um, you know, we want to have all of this right away, and it isn't going to happen right away. But it is happening. And considering how much things have changed in the last five, six years, the fact that universal health care is now not considered a impossible obstacle, but one that is inevitably going to happen. But as we know, in our country, we don't move quickly at all. We move very slowly. So just keep your eye on the prize. Jesse, uh, I understand, um, you know, we have some disagreements with some of those people, but if what they're doing is helping build the momentum for whole Washington, then we're all for it because it's the cause that matters, not the, not the people who are building their channels. That's not what this is about. And it never was transforming politics into service. That's what we do. And that's all anybody should be doing. I understand people have to make a living, but you know what? Politics, it should be a it should be a community service is what it should be. But it's not. It's a career. And that's what we're trying to change. So if you do believe in our cause, as you guys know, our, the money that we bring in through the Patreon and through our channel is not going into our pockets. It's going to causes, things that we do locally. There are candidates that are non-corporate that we support. Many of you know who they are. Maybe we'll learn more about others as we go forward. We have obviously this new project, which we're going to try to work on, municipal harvesting of rainwater. I think that's a great project, and I think we would get a lot of support for it. So, yeah, if you guys like uh, our work, please go to patreon.com forward slash generational change. For as little as $5 a month, you can be a supporter. $10 a month is even better, and $25 a month means you're an OG, and I love OGs, so make it happen if you can. Jen, any final words? $25 a month, you get the shirt. Ooh, I want one of those. (laughs) Uh, No, I mean, just support, and if, if, you know, you can't contribute financially, that's great, but just share it. Share our clips, share our stuff, you know? I mean, just spread the word. That's what's really helpful. Absolutely. We hope you guys enjoyed it. Please make sure you're subscribed and click the bell. You know people get kicked off all the time, but we're very grateful for those of you that are here. We may be small and mighty, but I think we're doing a pretty good job, and we look forward to seeing you next Monday. 
Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.